right, good morning. A lot of activity in here this morning. I always enjoy that and appreciate our people coming together and sharing what's going on in life and interacting with one another. One of the two, uh, some of you maybe know this piece of information, but just wanted to make you aware of it if you are not aware of it. Uh, Gary Sovine, Gary is here this morning. Many of you have met his mom. She has worshiped with us on many, many occasions throughout uh, these years. She went home to be with the Lord this past week, 98 years old, a wonderful godly lady, a wonderful mom. And so please pray for Gary, for his family. Uh, her funeral service will be next Saturday up in the Lookout uh, Mountain area. And so please be in prayer for them. But I'm, Gary, I'm glad that you're able to be with us this morning. He was telling me, he said, Mom's not been able to go to church to worship for a long time, but she's worshiping this morning, and that's always a great, great truth to bear in mind. If you would take your bulletin just for a moment, and uh, don't forget the hymn of the month, I would encourage you to pick up a copy of that, or you maybe have already received one, but be thinking that through. Care group number two, you have a picnic this afternoon. The details are there in the bulletin. We have a lot of activities going on at the church this week. Our Sojourners Luncheon is Thursday at noon, and then there in the evening is a ladies' painting night. I think there's been a good sign-up for that, so uh, ladies, paint well. Don't get any paint on the floor. That's the only thing I'm telling you. If you have someone graduating in your family, please let us know. You can contact Lee. We would like that information. Uh, that'll be observed on June the 12th. Church softball. We've had a lot of championship teams, and we're looking for another good season, just good fellowship and enjoyment of that. You can see either Andrew Dockery or Ty McClanahan with those, and then please make note of the summer picnics that are going on. Each week as we come together, we want to be reminded of what brings us together. What brings us together is our common bond in Christ, the gospel. We come together as a people redeemed by the precious blood of Christ to worship our God. We come together to be built up in our faith, to encourage one another. But ultimately, our purpose is to give worship and honor and glory to God as we sing, as we listen to the scriptures being read, as we listen to the sermon being preached, as we interact, as we confess our faith. So bear that in mind. To the praise of his glory is why we have come together here this morning. Let's take a moment and prepare our hearts, confess sin that is in our life, that we might be in a proper place in our hearts before the Lord. Take this verse with you into your time of preparation, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God is doing a work in us. He has brought us to faith. He has sealed us, and he is doing a work in our souls. Rest in that truth. Just take a moment and prepare our minds.
please stand with me, and as you do, let these words be the echo of your heart and your soul toward God. Psalm 104. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of the, his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariots. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. He set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took to flight. The mountains rose, the valley sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that they might not again cover the earth. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. May my meditation be pleasing to him for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth, let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Praise the Lord.
Week in and week out, 52 times a year, we join with the church, not only in our day, but throughout history in confessing our common faith, that faith we love, that faith which is central to who we are as a church, who we are as Christians. And today, we continue that effort with question number 27 of the Baptist Catechism. So church, let us hear truth, let us recite truth together. What offices does Christ perform as our Redeemer? Christ... Pray together. Well, Father, we recite this truth this morning and we hear rich theological themes that are traced from Genesis to Revelation that you have set forth for the comforting of your people to look upon Jesus. To see him as the prophet, the priest, the king, who all other prophet, priest, and kings pointed to. And here in him, our Savior, we have the Word who was made flesh and dwelt among us. We have the one who stands between you and us, our mediator, our priest, who entered into the heavenly places on our behalf. And we have him who rules over all things, the king forever, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Father, I would pray that those truths about Christ would so permeate our fellowship here at Randolph Street, strengthening the faith of your people here as they understand more and more who Jesus is and what Jesus accomplished for us as our prophet, our priest, and our king. Lord, I would pray those truths would so strengthen your people here that in the midst of tribulation and trials and difficulty and darkness, that there would rise up in their hearts hope that is grounded in this person, Jesus, and all that he is, all that he does and has done for us. I think of specific situations in our church family right now of those who are walking through difficult, dark days. Oh, God. Would you grant them a clear, clear picture of Jesus? That their faith would be stable, strong in him. Thank you, Father, for these promises in Christ. Thank you for what your word teaches us, how clear it is in regard to the person of the Lord Jesus. Magnify him today here among our gathering. As we sing, as we recite truth, as we read the scriptures, as we pray together, as we preach the word, as we walk to the table of the Lord, oh God, would you magnify the Son here among your people. Lord Jesus, be glorified. 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be honored. We pray that now in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand if you would.
reading from the Gospel of John. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. A reading from the book of James. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls." Thank you. 
truth in that message. I trust as we sing it throughout this month, those words will sink into our soul and bring us to a point of giving praise to our God. I'm going to ask Julia McClanahan if she would come up front at this time. Many of you are aware that uh, Julia will be going this summer to Scotland to serve uh, in a mission capacity. This morning I was reading, just uh, reflecting on Psalm 96, talking about the gospel going forth to the nations, thinking of the truth we just sang and the importance of taking that glorious truth to the nations. I'm going to ask Julia if she would just give us a little bit of a brief outline as to what she's doing this summer and then how we can best pray for her. So this summer, I'm going to, I'm going to cry. <laughs> uh, I probably will be probably. Um, so this summer, I'm spending 10 weeks in Scotland. I will be in Edinburgh, which is the capital. Um, I cry when I'm nervous. This, this isn't sad. This is happy. Um, so for 10 weeks, I'm serving in a local church 
um, with an organization called 20 Schemes. Basically what they do is they plant and revitalize churches in the schemes of Scotland. A scheme of Scotland is a really impoverished area. I'm talking generations and generations of poverty. Um, the scheme that I will be working in is located within the capital city, so there's a lot of people and a lot of poor people in this scheme. It's called Bingham. Um, and this, the church that I'm actually working with is called Hope Church, and it actually works with two different schemes, Bingham and Magdalen, but primarily with Bingham. Um, within this church, I'll be serving under a gospel worker. Her name is Emily Green. Um, she is primarily in women's ministry, so I'll be working a lot within women's ministry. Um, and basically, this church is, uh, they started in the middle of COVID in October of 2020. Scotland had a lot of lockdowns, a lot of restrictions. So it's a really small church. So a long-term prayer that I'm asking you guys to pray um, is that you would pray for this church. Um, they have about 20 solid members right now, um, but pray for um, just strong believers to come within this church and build that foundation of believers. Um, another thing, and I probably, you probably haven't asked me this yet, but I know you're going to. Um, another thing that I want you guys to pray for short term is our visas. There are about, I think there's like five interns going over to Scotland, um, but our visas have not been approved yet except for one person, and I fly out on Saturday. Please pray for that. That's a little bit stressful, um, but in the end, it, it happens. It's God's will, um, obviously, so pray for that especially, um, and just for the stress that it puts not only on me, but on them, on that organization, on that church, not knowing when we're coming over, but yeah. Let's uh, take that to heart, pray for Julia this uh, summer. If you would like to kind of keep up with her travel, she does a very good job in kind of keeping up uh, her communication. You can see her, see Jason or Ginger, get her email address, she'll put you on a list and uh, she'll keep us up so that we might be able to better pray for her. Let's take a moment and pray for this dear sister. Our Father, we come before you with hearts of thanksgiving. Thank you, Lord, for the truth of the gospel. We thank you, Father, for the joy which is ours as your children to be ministers of reconciliation, to take the gospel to people who desperately need the truth, Pray, Lord, that you would call many to yourself through the preaching of the gospel, the proclamation. I pray that Julia would have opportunity not only to work with the Christian women there in that scheme, but also to be able to share Jesus with others. We do pray this morning, Father, just for this visa situation, that you would do something very special, bring it to pass that she and her uh, fellow interns might be able to make this trip on Saturday pray for her protection. We pray for wisdom. I pray for strength for her body. I pray, Lord, that as she might face attack from the enemy, Lord, that your word would speak strongly through her. I pray, God, that you might use this summer to enrich her soul, continue to guide and direct her pathway. Father, we love her. We thank you for her life, and we pray, Lord, that it would bring much glory to you. In Jesus' name.
Oh, thank you, Stephen. Your constant ministry here at Randolph Street for all of our musicians and how well they work and how hard they work on our behalf. Um, so grateful for you guys and gals. I want to say two things before I jump into my sermon this morning. Uh, one, the 20 Schemes ministry that Pastor Tim spoke of with Julia uh, and where she will be this particular summer. I'm so um, deeply grateful for that ministry. We will, uh, as a church, continue to build relationships with them in the future. Uh, they're doing a good work. So many similarities between Scotland and Appalachia, West Virginia, Central Appalachia especially. So uh, 20 Schemes is on our radar. We've gotten to know some of their leaders. And again, grateful for them. Thank you, Pastor Tim, for praying for Julia this morning. And secondly, uh, and we're going to jump right into the sermon this morning. Secondly, we had an elders meeting yesterday, and I walked out of that meeting um, just refreshed, encouraged, and grateful for the men that God has called to lead this local church. Um, I, I walked out of that my, my heart was just happy. Um, I think about the elders and the deacons that God has raised up here, the gifts he has given to them, but far exceeding their gifts. And we're going to get into that in the text this morning. It's their character that I love. The godliness these men demonstrate so repeatedly among and in our fellowship. So just wanted to express that publicly to our church. Grateful, deeply grateful for the men that God has called to lead this church. Bible's open, notepads, pens, handy. Acts chapter 11 is our text this morning. Acts chapter 11, we're going to be covering verses 19 through the end of verse number 30. I'm thankful for Pastor Tim. He hit two hard sections, long, long sections of Acts 10 and 11 for us over two Sundays with a break in between those two sermons, which is not easy to do. It's hard to preach a two-part sermon anytime, but when you throw in a two-part sermon with a break, a halftime in between makes it even more difficult. So very thankful for I handled that text. Here's your outline. I'm going to get it right in front of you. It's, it's a little complicated this morning, so... I'll repeat it. Number one, three introductory comments coming out of Pastor Tim's sermons. Okay, so that's, that's the first thing. Three introductory comments coming out of Pastor Tim's sermons, all pre-sermon stuff. Clock doesn't start until after the introduction. That's just homiletical rules, okay? Number two, we're into the text now. Verses 19 through 21, we're going to look at persecution and blessing. Tie those two words together, persecution, blessing. Number three, verses 22 through 24, we're going to see suspicion and investigation happen. All right, 22 through 24, suspicion, investigation. Verses 25 through 26, we're going to see Saul. He's going to come back on the scene now. Saul and Antioch, all right, two important figures, if we could call them that. Saul's the figure, Antioch's the place, the people. 5, 27 through 30, prophets and relief. Okay, I'm going to repeat those four main points there. Persecution, blessing, suspicion, investigation, Saul and Antioch, prophets and relief. And then I'm going to conclude this morning with two very brief reflections to get us to the table. Okay, if you didn't get that, you'll get it when we move through it. Three introductory comments from Pastor Tim's sermons. Number one, 
Those two sermons, that text, he said this, but I'm going to repeat it, are crucial not only for the book of Acts, but really for all of the Old Testament, or at least much of the Old Testament. What happens in Acts 10 and 11 sets the tone for everything else that happens in the book of Acts and for much, if not all, of the New Testament. Pastor Tim referred to this, if I remember right, in his first sermon. Even Revelation is concerned with Acts chapter 10. When you have the nations gather around the throne of God, where's that rooted at? Well, practically speaking, in history, it's rooted right here in Acts 10. And the gospel now penetrating the, the nations, the Gentiles. So that idea of what is happening here is going to set the tone for the rest of the scriptures. Number two, this Jew-Gentile issue, now this brings us back into Acts, this Jew-Gentile issue is going to hit its boiling point. We're not there yet. It's coming. It's going to hit the boiling point in Acts 15. So from Acts 10 to Acts 15, and really you could back it up even to Acts 8, but all the way up now to Acts 15, there's going to be this growing conflict that's happening, this anticipation of conflict, if you will, that's going to hit its boiling point. The whistle's going to blow, right, in Acts 15, and the gathering of the council in Jerusalem to deal with this issue, Jew and Gentiles in the church. It's not just about position, though that's a major part of this. How do Gentiles fit? It is about position. But it's also about practice. It's just not about how they fit in positionally in the, in the, in the work of God, but it's also practically how do they fit in in the work of God. So when we come to Acts 15, it's going to be primarily about practical issues. Because there's a massive transition that's happening right in front of our eyes, and this conflict that's rising up is going to be a primary subject of many of Paul's letters. The rub between Jew and Gentile becomes a primary issue in a variety of his letters, whether it be position, Ephesians 2, right? They've been brought together into one body. There's answer there to position, but likewise practice and, and how they relate to one another in being brought together into one body. I mean, the last section of Romans is dealing with that issue. Jew, Gentile, conflict, problem. How, how do you relate now? So Pastor Tim's sermons for those two weeks sets tone for the rest of the New Testament, but it also introduces for us an issue that will become a boiling point in Acts chapter 15, number three. This is unrelated a little bit to Pastor Tim's sermon, but something I've caught on a few times. Chronology is an absolute bear in the book of Acts, and I never recognized that. We wrestled with chronology in the Gospel of John. That was hard, but John was, John was easy compared to the book of Acts at times. So if you let your eyes linger all the way down to the end of this text, verse 30. And they did so, sending it, I'll, we'll talk about what it is in just a moment, to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. This captures for us, in a very brief comment, Paul's second visit to Jerusalem. He, he, his initial visit was Acts chapter 9, verses 26 through 30. 
that Paul summarized in Galatians 1. Now, now hear this. This will help you in your reading of the Bible. His first visit, Acts 9, is summarized in Galatians 1. His second visit here in Acts 11 with Barnabas is summarized in Galatians 2. Probably. I say probably behind all of that because there's a wrestling going in here among scholars about the chronology of Paul and his visits to Jerusalem and when they happened and where they're recorded. We're going to see another visit of Paul to Jerusalem, late Jerusalem later in the book of Acts that's going to be tied to another relief effort. Paul will be arrested at that visit in Jerusalem. But I, I do want to say this. I think Acts 11 is tied to Galatians 2, verses 1 through 10. So just, just a little bit of chronology for you chronology geeks out there, which you probably are not one here, but there you go. Let's get to the text now. Verses 19 through 21, persecution and blessing. Look down at your Bibles. Now those who were scattered, Acts 11, because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So Luke, the writer here, who some believe he was converted, he's, he's one of the Antioch conversions, some scholars. Luke, in verse 19, takes our attention back to chapter 8. All right, he's going to explain to us how the persecution that happened in Jerusalem was used by God to move the gospel outside of Jerusalem, so, which is chapter 8. So let me back up a little bit. Acts 7, Stephen stands up and preaches that amazing sermon, the, the longest sermon in the book of Acts, just a phenomenal exposition of what God has done through history, now in Christ. It's a pointed sermon. He's calling for repentance. Stephen is martyred in Acts chapter 7. Coming out of Acts chapter 7 is this statement by Luke. Listen. There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And then here it is. They were all scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles, except the apostles, Saul was ravaging the church and entering the house, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women, committed them to prison. In Acts chapter 8, verse 4, this is really important for Acts 11. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So persecution falls in Jerusalem because of Stephen and his sermon, and really it was a buildup. And in Acts chapter 8, this persecution lands up on Jerusalem, and it scatters the Christians, except the apostles. They're Jewish Christians, and it scatters them. And Luke's commentary on this in Acts 4 is this. When they were scattered, what did they do? They went preaching the word. That's just what they did. So in Acts 11, verse number 19, Luke is picking back up on that narrative. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, there it is, they traveled to Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. So he's tying it all together for us, what happened back in Acts 7, Acts 8. Now, now we're back to that, what's happening. He identifies three locations here, three geographical locations. Phoenicia is a 
coastal plain located near the Mediterranean, just west of Lebanon. It includes a couple of important cities like Tyre and Sidon. Those are biblical cities that you might remember. Cyprus, the second location mentioned, is not a region. It's an island, which I guess you could say is a region. Um, it's located off the coast of Syria. You may be familiar with that if you flip in the back and look through your maps of your Bible in Bible times, especially the missionary journeys. Cyprus is important for a variety of reasons. It will be visited on missionary journeys, but it is likewise the birthplace, the hometown of an important figure in our narrative today, Barnabas. This is Acts chapter 4, verse 36 and 37. I'm going to read it because I think it'll be helpful for us later in the sermon. Barnabas is, all right, a little, little quiz here. Tim preached this sermon, so it's on him. What was Barnabas's real name? Don't answer, Tim. Does anybody know? Come on. All right, that's, that's why he was named Barnabas. It's good Bible trivia. All right, I'm going to read it. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostle, apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus. There he is. So now we're, we're up in his home territory. The gospel's spreading up into those areas. I'm going to read the next verse in Acts 4. He sowed a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. There's a little statement there that's true about the church in Acts but it's especially true of Barnabas that characterizes his life. He sold a field, took all that money. This is Joseph, known by the apostles as Barnabas, a son of encouragement. He brings it and he lays it at the apostles' feet. Remember the, 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 the concern of the poor in Jerusalem, and Barnabas steps in to serve. Antioch's the other location mentioned here by Paul in verse number 19, or about Luke. Antioch becomes the focus now. And there's going to be a little interruption in chapter 12, but, but Antioch's going to become a very important city in the book of Acts. And listen, it becomes a crucial city in regard to the mission of the gospel. It's located inland about 20 miles from the Mediterranean Sea. If you, if you pull up a, a current map of Turkey, if you look at the, 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 the country of Turkey, there's a little kind of, right in the middle of Turkey, there's a little drop down. All right, that, that drops down beside the Mediterranean Sea. And this particular city, Antioch, would be located in that particular area of modern-day Turkey. It's a significant city. All right, it's, it's a commercial hub. It's a cultural hub. It's the third largest city of the ancient world, Rome being the largest, Alexandria being the second largest, and now Antioch. And these are, these are three different geographical locations. Antioch is the third largest city of the ancient world. So it becomes really an important city for what God is now going to do through the church, this commercial, societal, cultural, and really we could even say a religious, multi-religious hub of the ancient world. And if you let your eyes linger back down to verse number 19, notice there's still the struggle going on. They were preaching the gospel to the Jews only. I mean, listen, what Tim preached the last two weeks didn't resolve everything. 
I mean, we didn't turn the page from what happened in Peter's vision and the church just say, there it is, done deal. Gentiles are in, no questions. They're wrestling over this. Who's the proper audience for the gospel? Others would come, verse 20, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, and it says they would speak the gospel, the word to the Hellenists. Now, Hellenists in this text, we've been introduced to the Hellenists already. Most scholars think Hellenist here is kind of a generic term that refers to Jews and Gentiles, but they're Greek-speaking Jews and Gentiles. So, so I think the emphasis here, this narrative, is now this other group comes in. They're saying, no, 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 the gospel's for, for everyone. They may not use those terms, but, but practically speaking, they're going to preach the gospel not just to the Jews. It's these Greek-speaking individuals likewise. And look at verse number 21. As we've seen in the book of Acts on multiple occasions, a mini revival breaks out here. A great number who believed turned to the Lord. I think this is, this is Jew and Gentile. And the question is, why do they turn to the Lord? Look at the beginning of verse number 21. The hand of the Lord was with them. Now, this is all happening in Antioch. The next verse is going to help us see that. But the gospel is now moving northward aggressively in this little section of modern-day Turkey, Antioch. It's, as a matter of fact, you've, you've probably heard of Aleppo in Syria, modern-day Syria. This, this particular town, Antioch, which doesn't exist anymore, it would have been just westward of modern-day Aleppo, Syria. The gospel's penetrating those lands. Jews and Gentiles are coming to faith in the Lord Jesus. They're embracing him as this Messiah figure, this Savior, the Lamb of God. The question is, why do they believe? It's a radical moment, and, and, and Luke answers that for us. He gives us this kind of theological commentary, right? The hand of the Lord, verse 21, was with them. The hand of the Lord now, we need to have a good theology here. God doesn't have a hand. He is spirit. This is language biblical writers will often use to take a divine truth and communicate it in our language, something we can grasp and understand. Hand of the Lord here speaks of the presence and power of God upon them. In other words, what Luke is saying here, the reason these conversions were taking place was because the Lord was bringing forth the fruit. That's the emphasis here of what Luke is commentating on. In other words, the revival was grounded not in, not in the work of the church. The revival was grounded in the work of God. In other words, it is of the Lord. And Luke's not going to let you miss that. He, is, he doesn't want you to think that these messengers into Antioch had unique gifting that enabled them to bring many to Christ. What he wants you to see is this, the hand of God was upon them. The power of God was there, so therefore many believed. As a matter of fact, let your eyes linger up to last week's text. I hated asking Pastor Tim to preach such a long narrative because there's no way he could cover everything. It's impossible. There's this last little phrase he referenced, verse 18, talking about the Gentiles, verse 18 of chapter 11, God granted repentance to them that leads to life. 
just another way to say it's the work of the Lord. If you believe, if you repent, it is a gift of God. That needs to be not just a truth that we intellectually ascend to, but a truth that grips our hearts. Repentance and faith are a gift of God. They are not generated by the spiritually dead sinner. They are kind and gracious gifts of God. That's why Luke looks at this. When the Gentiles and Jews are turning to the Lord, they're believing. Luke says, hey, the hand of the Lord was up on them. Just another way of saying he granted them repentance. He awakened them to see their sin so that they could repent. He awakened them to see Christ so that they would believe. If you write in your Bibles, out in the margin, it might be helpful to write 1 Corinthians 3, verses 6 and 7, right beside of this little text. This is what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3, 6 and 7. I planted... Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. That's like a theological commentary to what Luke is saying when he says the hand of the Lord is with them, or God granted them repentance. It's just a theological commentary. Paul says, I planted gospel work here. I planted the seed. Apollos watered the seed, but it was neither Paul nor Apollos that caused the seed to grow. Only God can do that. So he writes in verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 3, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. You're incapable. You're insufficient for God work. But, he says, only God who gives the growth. Only God. He's something. We, we are not anything. So, so Luke wants you to understand that as the gospel's marching through these cities of Judea, up into Galilee, and ultimately into Europe, Paul wants you to understand it's not Saul, it's not Barnabas, it's not the church of Antioch, it's not Peter, it's not John, it is God who gives the growth. Period. End of story. No more commentary needed. He grants repentance. So Randolph Street is not on us to bring results. I... I tore up an area of my yard this year and bought some of that roll-out fabric with seed and fertilizer and everything and thinking this is the secret, right, of growing grass. So I rolled it out and I've watered it now and it's, it's beginning to grow a little bit. And you farmers, you get this. You can plant the seed all you want to. And you can water the seed. Not sufficiently, but you can. At the, end of the, at the end of the day, as a farmer, you are dependent. Sunshine, rain, you're dependent. Well, guess what? The church, we can do nothing to make a dead sinner live. We can plant the seeds of the gospel, but this little text that Luke brings in here, just to remind us, as the gospel's moving, as the gospel's advancing, as revivals, if that's what you want to call them, as they break out in various cities, remember, the hand of the Lord does the work. God grants repentance. Only God gives the increase. It's a little theological sod there. 
Why Barnabas? Look down at, let's go down to verse 22. Suspicion and investigation. Look at verse 22. The report of this came to the ears. The report is, many are believing. The report came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came, he saw the grace of God, and he was glad, and he exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Again, another statement. Many people added to the Lord. So just like it happened back in Acts chapter 8, when the Samaritans believe, what did the church of Jerusalem do? They sent Peter and John to investigate. All right? They wanted to know, is this, is this real? Is this happening among, God forbid, the Samaritans? So, so they sent Peter and John to investigate. Now, upon the report of what is happening to Antioch, the church of Jerusalem is going to send a man by the name of Barnabas. They're probably suspicious, and rightfully so, they're certainly curious. I think suspicion would be natural here because Antioch was, after all, a pagan city full of Gentiles. That's what it was. And now there's a seemingly a movement of God. So the Jerusalem church says, hey, we've got to figure out what's going on here. Let's send Barnabas up to meet with this group. Why Barnabas? Well, look at verse number 24. I think it helps us understand why they sent Barnabas. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. This, this is a high character guy. I mean, nobody else in the, New, in, in the book of Acts is called a good man. This is a high character God. And he's not just a high character God. The church could see it. This is what I was thinking about our elders yesterday and our deacons. The church could see this. He was a high character man. He was a, a mature, stable, responsible, loving, humble. And we know he was a giving man. This is just who Barnabas is, was. In Acts 4, his name is Joseph. They call him Barnabas because he's a son of encouragement. This is just who he is. He's mature. He's stable. He's loving. He's giving. He's sacrificial. He serves. He builds up. He strengthens. Daryl Bach in his commentary said this about Barnabas, and I think this is a good summary. He was a person of maturity promoting maturity in others. Like, you get the feel when you read about Barnabas, just, he couldn't help it. It just, it just by, by the work of God, this was who he was. And notice at the end of verse number 24, he was full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. He walked in the Spirit. He was gifted by the Spirit. He was led by the Spirit. He believed God and the promises that God had given to the church in Christ. So that's, I think it's why they sent Barnabas. This is an incredibly important moment in the history of the church. Division, controversy is going to come out of this moment. Who else would you send but a mature, stable, loving, sacrificial, giving man who loves to build up, encourage, and strengthen. That's Barnabas. Look back at verse 23. When Barnabas goes to Antioch, he sees the grace of God. 
What do you think it means? Don't answer this out loud, but what do you think it means when he sees the grace of God? There's an obvious answer there, I think. He, he sees conversions. I, I gave you no time to think through that answer. He sees conversions. I always, I'm always fearful you're going to say something out loud and it's going to be wrong. And then I've got to somehow navigate that back to something okay. Confession. He sees the grace of God because conversions were happening. There's no question about that. I think it's more than that. I think he was seeing lives transformed. <laughs> now, you could say that's part of conversion, and it is. I think he was seeing lives transformed, a pagan people now loving Jesus. And he walks into the city of Antioch, and Barnabas sees the work of God. Verse 23 and note this, he was glad. It's like he walked in just looking for God and God's work. And when he saw it, he was not competitive like, ah, you guys are okay here, but man, Jerusalem, that's the church to be in. And if you want a church, Jerusalem's a place to go. What God's doing here is okay. No, the Barnabas doesn't have a competitive spirit. This is about the kingdom of God. And he walks into Antioch, and he, he's glad. He sees the grace of God, and he's just like a kid at Christmas here. He is absolutely thrilled at what God is doing. In verse 23, he exhorts them. Immediately, he's the feel of this. He sees the grace of God, and his plea to them is this, stay faithful. I think Barnabas knows the danger. And we've seen that here at Randolph Street of people becoming deceived by the evil one or by movements. And Barnabas walks in, he sees the grace of God, he looks them in the eyes, and his plea with them is this, please, 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 stay faithful to the purpose of the Lord. What a man. I'm coming back to him at the end. 27 through 30, a prophet and some relief work. Verse 27, now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Verse 28, one of them was named Agabus. He stood up and he foretold by the Spirit. I'm, I'm rushing ahead here, but there would be a great famine over all the earth, and this took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So now we're going to see a transition. And I think when Barnabas walked into Antioch and he saw the grace of God, I said transformation of lives. I think Luke is going to give us an evidence of the grace that he saw in this narrative. A prophet named Agabus is going to come onto the scene. Agabus tuck his name away because in Acts 21, he's coming back. And he's kind of a, not to speak ill of Agabus, but he's kind of a prophet of doom. I mean, he's going to warn Paul in Acts 21, rightfully so, and he's going to warn the church here of a famine in this particular text. Prophets are a complex group in the New Testament. And really, they're a complex group in the Old Testament. It's just not easy in the New Testament to get your hands around what all a prophet was, especially early church 
prophet. What we do know, and I want you to kind of tuck this into your mind, in Ephesians 2.20, Paul would say, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So whatever the prophets might be, just, just give me the moment here, whatever a prophet might be, they carried a very, very important role in the early church. I mean, I would argue unrepeatable, which is what foundation work is, right? They built a foundation here for the church. And so Agabus here steps into the scene, and he's a prophet, Prophets predict, we're going to see that in this text, they reveal, they exhort, they rebuke, they warn, and they comfort. When, when you take the whole of the Bible, when you think about the, 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 the office of a prophet, this is what they do. They predict, they reveal, they exhort, they rebuke, they warn, they comfort. And that ministry, those, those variations of ministry that I just said, they all center up on God's word for his people. Agabus here is predictive, right? He's going to come to Antioch, and he's going to say there's a famine that's coming, and note, if you will, it's going to have a wide-ranging devastation. I think it's what's meant by this little phrase, over all the world, at the end of verse number 28. It's going to have a wide-ranging effect. As Luke notes took place during the reign of Claudius, which was 41 A.D. to 54 A.D. He notes that in verse number 28. Let me talk a little bit about this famine, then get back on track here. One writer says the famine in Judea, which Jerusalem is kind of the center point here, was a product of a poor harvest in A.D. 45 in Egypt that was followed by severe grain shortage and high prices in the region. This almost sounds like a commentary on today's times. He says, this state of affairs would have extended well past A.D. 47. And he says, since Egypt, and, and here it is again, since Egypt was the breadbasket of the whole region, a drought or famine there meant trouble for the poor in Judea. We know there are poor in Judea. We know there are poor in Jerusalem, right? Because all of early Acts was dealing, not all of it, but, but portions of early Acts was dealing with the poor in Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, that's why Barnabas laid the, the proceeds from the sale of a field before the apostles' feet. So famine hits Jerusalem. It's, it's going to hit Jerusalem. On two occasions in the book of Acts, the church outside of Jerusalem is going to step in and serve the saints, the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. Acts 11 and then later, Acts 20 and following. They're going to feel compelled, Acts 23, if I remember right, they're going to feel compelled to step in and help the saints, brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. Notice the church in verse 29 and 30, the Antiochian church. The disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. So they see suffering coming, Agabus the prophet, they see suffering coming, and here, here is maybe why it says Barnabas walked into Antioch and he saw the grace of God, because of this kind of stuff. And these new believers are in Antioch. They hear, especially if they're Gentile, 
they hear that Jewish believers in Jerusalem are going to face this severe famine. So their response is, according to their ability, they're going to gather funds and going to send it for relief. Barnabas, I see the grace of God. Right? Their response is not to move away from their duties to their brothers and sisters. I mean, this is Galatians chapter 6 kind of stuff. Do good to all. What's the next little phrase? Especially to the household of faith. And that they know that these men and women in Jerusalem and Judea, that's their brothers, that's their sisters. Ethnic boundaries don't matter here. That's not the issue, Jew, Gentile. They see this reality and they're going to step into that and they're going to serve these men and women. They're going to care for them. According to their ability, they're going to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. Later in Acts, and you just see this spirit everywhere in Acts, and I want this spirit to be true of us. I want it to be true of me. Later in Acts chapter 20, when Paul is talking to the Ephesian elders for the last time, in his mind, this is right before Agabus is going to come back on the scene and say, you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be arrested, beaten. Acts chapter 20, verse number 35, listen to what Paul says to the Ephesian elders. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. This is the church at Antioch. This is a principle of our Savior. They believed it and they lived it. See, being the church really is not about you. We see this throughout all the New Testament. It's about what God has called you to, to others. That's part of what it looks like to be the church. And the Antioch believers, man, they they got this. They got this from day one, it feels like. I think this is why Barnabas looks at them and says, I see the grace of God because they had received the gospel, but in turn, they wanted to serve just like Jesus served. They wanted to embrace these words of Jesus. It's more blessed to give than to receive they knew that to be true, so they, they took hold of that in their lives, and they knew, listen, participating in the church is not about me. Yes, I get fruit of that. I get encouraged. I get strengthened. But participating in the body of Christ is about me serving others. And these Antiochian believers, they believed that. They embraced that, and their lives reflected it. They gave themselves for others. I've done a number of funerals. I just, it's funny. I just went back the other day and reviewed. I was looking for a particular sermon I'd preached, and I preached it in a funeral, and I couldn't remember whose funeral it was. So I went back and just for a good exercise of my soul, started opening up every funeral I have preached just here at Randolph Street. And it's, Tim has this experience. He thinks about decades of ministry. And as I was going through those funerals, I started thinking about the people. Certain individuals really popped in my mind. I can say this without reservation. And I think Tim would agree. I've never met the person who at their last days regretted living this kind of life where they served and they gave served and they gave. They they never stepped back in those moments 
and regretted not hoarding and taking. Why is that? Because the words of Jesus are true. The words of Jesus are true. It is more blessed to give than to receive. I think Barnabas looked at his church and he was blown away by the grace of God. They loved Jesus and they were living like Jesus. I mean, it was, it was on display. All right, two reflections before we come to the table. This is an odd reflection for me, number one. I don't say things like this very often, but I'm gonna say it today. We need more Barnabases. I never say stuff like that. I don't like stuff like that, but I'm gonna say it this one. We need more Barnabases in a day when the church is fractured over so many issues, when those who have loud mouths get the most attention, we need Barnabas-like men who will step in, humble, mature men who will build, strengthen, and encourage. Man, I'm talking to you. Sorry, ladies. You can be Barnabas too. We need that. In a day when the loud mouths rule the conversation, that's okay. It's okay. We need humble, mature, strong men, stable, who will step into the church and be concerned with a humble posture of building, strengthening, encouraging, and growing the people of God. I pray that God will raise up dozens of dozens of dozens of those men here. This man has been that in my life almost three decades. Build, courage, strengthen, from a posture of humility and love and grace and mercy. God would grant dozens of those people here, hundreds of them. Number two. Paul would later raise funds for the poor in Jerusalem from a variety of Gentile churches. This isn't the last time. I mentioned that earlier. He's going to do it again. He's going to write about it. 1 Corinthians 16, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Romans chapter 15. He's going to write about another relief fund. I think it's a second time. Paul's going to come along and pursue giving for the relief of the saints. Paul is not bashful about exhorting the people of God to give and sacrifice. He's just not. He's pointed, he's instructive, he exhorts, give. Objects, purposes, gospel work, give. So when he writes to the Corinthians or he writes to the Romans, he, he, he encourages them, he exhorts them, clear language, unashamed. But when you read 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, it is, it is like the text of giving. 
He grounds his understanding of giving, your sacrifice, your call to give. Remember, it's not about you. It's not about this world. It's about you serving, about you giving. It's Paul to us. He grounds all of that on the giving of Christ. Let me read it. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. In the midst of all of his exhortation, his example of the Macedonian churches and how they gave above and beyond their ability to give, I mean, he is just deeply impressed with the Macedonian churches. As he exhorts the Corinthians, this is what he says. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, He's richer than you would ever think of. In eternity past, the glory of the Son with the Father, and he becomes poorer than you could ever imagine in his humiliation. And that's the model that he sets before us. That's what the tables are going to remind us of today. I close with this. D.A. Carson. And I'm going to give some commentary to it. When you stand beside the cross and you see that all Jesus has done for us and how he accomplished it, when you stand beside the cross, D.A. says, it is hard to be selfish. So here's your challenge today as you walk to these tables. Not to focus on the commands that God has given to you, but to focus instead upon the gospel. And to be reminded, this is our master, this is our Lord. No one has sacrificed like him. And just let your heart and your soul commune with your Savior today. Rejoicing in his sacrificial giving for you. Paul writes, for our sake. The one who was rich became poor. For our sake. So let's walk to these tables in a little while. When you hear the elders say to you, this is his body, this is his blood, what I want you to hear, for our sake. And let that for our sake color your whole life and everything you do. As Antioch, as a Christian. I skipped some things there. I pushed through some things to get us here as a Christian. Let's pray together. Elders, please come. Prepare the tables. Before I pray, let me remind you that this time together is for Christians, those who have embraced Jesus as Lord and Savior. And your hope is Christ and Christ alone. This is your time. If that fits you, we invite you to come. As you come, be reminded that it is for your sake. If you're not a Christian, just sit, stay, listen, hear, as now the gospel will be portrayed in the way Christ has ordained it to be portrayed through a cup and through bread. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time and for your encouragement this morning from a church long ago, distant past, but your work so clear, so obvious. Let us now, as we walk out of this text, be reminded that all that we have, 
and all that we ever will have is because of Christ. Every spiritual blessing is through him. So call our hearts to rest there, to hope there, to feed upon our Savior and have our souls nourished today by the truth of the gospel. So bless now this time together as the church. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Deacons, you can begin dismissing.
Well, we come to that moment that Christ has ordained for his church to be this constant, continual reminder, focus of our faith for all that Jesus has accomplished for us as his people, to, to center our hearts and minds there, to see the cross and to understand the benefits that Christ has purchased for us. Christ has ordained that to occur here at these tables with this bread and this cup. May God bless now his church as we turn our full attention up on him our Savior. Paul, recording the words of the Lord Jesus on the last night when he was betrayed, he told his disciples at that meal, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, Jesus would remind his disciples, this cup we hold in our hands is the new covenant he writes in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And the Lord's table intended to remind us of the promises that God has given us in Christ. So Paul would say, when you eat of this bread and you drink of this cup, we proclaim together as the church the Lord's death until he comes. God gave us this table to remind us every time we partake, Jesus is coming. Father, hallelujah is the right response to that truth. And we anticipate that day when bread and cup will no longer be needed because our eyes will behold the Savior. And we will join together at that great feast with our Christ and behold the promises of God with our eyes as we set before our Savior. Lord, use the truth of the table this morning. Use the communion we have with Christ to nourish and strengthen our hearts of faith this morning. Bless your people now with the promises that you have given us in Jesus. May they become true, real, deep within our hearts today. Thank you for that truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand if you would.
Amen. What a glorious reminder that is. As Pastor Jason mentioned during the taking of the table, how God has set that before us to help us press on toward going home. Something else that God has so graciously and kindly left before us is the Lord's Prayer, a reminder of those things necessary in our souls as we press toward that mark. Let us say it together. Our Father, who art in heaven, 